الحمد لله منش الخلق من عدمي ثم الصلاة ولا المختار في القدم لولا يصلي وسلم دائما أبدا على حبيبك خير الخلق كلهم My respected dear brothers and friends There's a masjid called Masjid Ijaba in Madinatul Munawwar And previously it used to be very visible from Masjid Nabawi But these days because of constructions etc It's normally visible when you go on a ziyara or a tour in passing So it's called Masjid Ijaba for a reason. It was at that place that Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam on one occasion, and in one narration it was when he was preparing the army to go in the direction of Khaybar. He passed by that area and uh, he stopped. And the Sahaba radiallahu anhu stopped with him. And at that point, Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam made three duas. Two of those duas were accepted. And one Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not accept. We do not obviously use the word rejection for Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. But any dua, it is at the discretion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Be it the dua of a Nabi, be it the dua of a Wali, or be it even the dua of an enemy for that matter, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may choose to accept, or Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala choose not to accept. So at that point, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam made this dua. That, oh Allah, do not kill my ummah, do not exterminate my ummah because of famine. That there should be such a condition on the ummah that universally, globally, wherever a Muslim so resides, he will be caught up in famine and as a result, that community will perish and die because of that famine. And Rasulullah immediately says, Allah Ta'ala accepted my dua. And therefore, I'm assured that no matter how much difficulties by way of weather conditions or famine come upon any portion of the ummah. Remember, this dua was in extent of the entire ummah. There may be portions of the ummah that are afflicted by famine. People will pass away, but it will never result in the annihilation of the entire ummah. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepted this dua. Then I made this dua that, oh Allah, do not allow my enemy to be destroyed or annihilated by an enemy. Do not allow my ummah to be annihilated or destroyed by an enemy. What's the second dua? Do not allow my ummah to be destroyed or annihilated by an enemy. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepted this dua. That although there may be portions of the ummah that are engaged in combating the enemy, and from time to time, from a worldly perspective, the enemy may get the upper hand, 
and many people may lose their lives and attain shahada and martyrdom, losing a life by way of the dunya, martyrdom by way of both worlds and the qabr and the hereafter. It will never ever result that the entire ummah will be in that predicament or that position that they will now be under the sword of an enemy facing complete annihilation or extermination or death. But then Rasulullah made the third dua. And in that third dua, Rasulullah asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that, Oh Allah, do not allow my ummah to fight amongst themselves. In other words, there must always be peace and harmony in every single Muslim community across the entire world. That if there's a country, there's a community, there must never ever be infighting, there must never ever be friction. And this dua did not receive acceptance from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Hence, Rasulullah later on mentions that you will see, you will see that the ummah will remain pretty much united. But let the time of Usman radiallahu come. He uses a particular word that the swords will be drawn upon the passing of Uthman radiallahu anhu and it will never ever be sheeted and put back inside its, uh, its, its, uh, you know, its sheet, inside its holder until the day of Qiyam. Referring to the fact that that will be one point of history in the Ummah. That will be one point of history in the Ummah that Uthman radiallahu anhu will attain martyrdom and the Ummah, even though both claim to be on the right side, would result in such that you will have friction amongst both claimants of the right side and this will continue right till the end of time and we are living in the midst of that time, not to say our ancestors or fathers or grandfathers were not living in that time. And if our children, who are mu'mineen and believers, live another generation, not to say that they won't see that time. So the Sahaba, radiallahu anhu, heard this first hand. They were messenger of Allah that now, this is a very difficult situation. They claim they're right, they claim they're right, and they saw it. Later on, they saw it post the time of Usman radiallahu anhu, but even amongst the Sahaba radiallahu anhu, there were campaigns, one group claiming that we are right, and the other group claiming that we are right. And how we are taught to address that period of time was that both groups were on the haq, were on the truth, but in reality, it is mentioned that in the battle of Jamal and Sifin, two battles, which was basically the Muslims amongst themselves, in the battle of Jamal and Sifin combined together, more Muslims lost their fight, lost their lives fighting amongst Muslims than had lost their lives combined against the kuffar in the time of Nabi Wasallam, Abu Bakr, Omar and Usman radiallahu. The amount of people that passed away in just those two battles by the tens of thousands, if one had to look at the registrar of names of people who never made it out of the battlefield, just these two alive, then one would find that the, the battles that were... Now look at the time of Nabi Wasallam, Uhud, Badr, Khandaq, Khaybar, Tabuk, 57 campaigns. And not all of those campaigns were, were resulted in warfare, but Rasulullah himself participated in what? 57 that we know. And during his time, 73 took place. Some he did not physically participate in, like counted amongst them is the army or the Jaysh of Usama radiallahu anh, that was prepared in his time, but he did not physically participate and he made parda from this world during the course thereof. 
73 in total. Amongst the people that passed away in Umar radiallahu's time, it's mentioned that the Muslims engaged with the kuffar as per the official records of Umar radiallahu anh, 3,800 times at least in different parts. But remember, it was circular at that time. From Yemen to Iraq to Central Asia. Uthman radiallahu anh, has a whole history of his own. All of that combined and amongst the people who did not make it alive out of the battlefield, Jamal and Sifin, these two, were more in number of those fatalities, those who attained martyrdom, than those who passed away earlier on. Look at what Rasulullah said earlier on at Masjid al-Ijaba, which later on became known as Masjid al-Ijaba. That will be a reality. So the Sahaba radiallahu immediately realized that, O oh, Messenger of Allah, that if we are living in such a time, if we are living in such a time, what must we do? Rasulullah advises them, As-Sukut, do yourself a favor and learn to keep quiet. The art of keeping quiet is a skill on its own. Rasulullah even tells the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, that if a person keeps quiet, man sakata salima in one narration, man salima naja. That that person who keeps quiet will be saved, and that person who now keeps, who rather practices sukut, he will now be saved. So what does Rasulullah mean by keeping quiet? What does it mean? But if a person sees something that they disagree with, should they not speak about it? It doesn't mean that they should not speak about it. In fact, it is their duty to speak about it. But what Rasulullah implies is that there are times that you will not need to pursue it. Or you will not pursue it beyond a particular point. That you will speak about it. I do not agree with this. I am unhappy with this. You Put forward your opinion. You put forward whatever is in your mind. There is nothing wrong with that. By all means, a believer, a mu'min, and especially a person who is an authority is welcome to do so. But there is a had and there is a boundary to everyone or every single condition which all of us personally should learn. Even a father inside a household should know that there are certain times and certain limits that where a person overly speaks, it ends up becoming counterproductive than what it's supposed to be. But rather the attention and the focus of the individual is upon the creation of an environment that is good. That's irreplaceable. But people refuse to do it because it is very difficult. It is the difficult part. It is the stony part. But you know what? I'm observing something negative in my community, inside my household. But let me do this. In addition to me talking and announcing and speaking about it, which alhamdulillah I will do at least once, I will put an added effort inside there to create an environment of khair, of good. I will establish ta'aleem in that very same community. I will call the young men of that community and arrange for them such type of programs, whatever it may be, within the conformity of deen, to learn about their deen, to address them about their deen. I will now acknowledge and admit that I may not be the best example, but at the very least, there is salvation inside salah as a reminder. People fail to do that, not because it's impossible, but because it is the difficult part. Where a person comments over and over again, 
and does not necessarily hold their tongue and their thoughts, that quite often is the easier part. Because at least for my own self, I've, I've now come to the conclusion that I have now put forward my case. And if the other person doesn't want to accept my case, well, you know what, for him is his deen and for him is his opinion, let him carry on. This is not the way of the sunnah. But the way of the sunnah is perseverance. That it is amr bil ma'roof, it is commanding with good, it is also prohibition from evil. But yet at the same time by way of practicality, for every time Nabi Wasallam made umur and commanded towards good, he now to a lesser extent may have called away from a negative because an environment of positivity was now created. Even amongst the munafiqoon and the hypocrites of Madinatul Manawa. Such was the extent and the environment of khair and good that even a hypocrite who in the hearts of his heart was a disbeliever would still show up for salah, would still show up in the most dangerous of situations and that is in jihad fi sabirillah under this impression by those who are around me, what prompted him to do so? Why is the munafiq and the hypocrite of today so blatant about the hypocrisy, but the hypocrite, the munafiq, at the time of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, was hidden about his nifaq, was because of the overwhelming environment of khair and good that existed at that time. And where an ummah creates that overwhelming environment of good, even that hypocrite or that disbeliever or a person who is an outright antagonist against Islam, although he may never ever accept, will at the very least keep quiet. In the events leading up to Monday, the last Monday that went by, with the consecration of a temple famously known and which unfortunately well celebrated across the world known as the Ram Mandir very few people in the Muslim world held attention to the fact that that is no ordinary property that is no ordinary place it stands on the ruins or it stands on the destruction of an age-old centuries masjid which was the focus of attention many decades ago known as the Babri Masjid. And the Babri Masjid was constructed at least about 600 years ago. Its current construction of the 15th century was a renovation. But the actual putting down of the stone itself was much more earlier than that, most likely by the Delhi Sultanate. And after centuries of operating and operating as a masjid, in 1949, at the time of the partition of India and Pakistan, here comes a group and lays claim to it that this year belongs to us. And it was in fact the birthplace of one of our deities known as Ram, so therefore it belongs to us. The court rules and says that, listen here, because this is a disputed place, nobody comes to pray. Or you will have one day, you will have another day. One of the sages of this ummah, who is still alive now, Mullah Saifur Rahman Azmi, he mentioned that that was the first mistake of the ummah. By accepting the decision of a split decision, that you know what, all this while it was ours, but half you will take and half you will take, or there will be no decision whatsoever, was the first folly of the ummah. Because the nature of kufr and disbelief is that if you extend towards kufr and disbelief, 
your pinky, your small finger, or one digit of your finger. If you are not careful, it will take a generation, but that disbelief will come and ask for your hand. And after taking your hand, will take your arm. And by the third or the fourth generation, it will take you to a point that you will not be able to defend anything in the name of Allah and His Messenger, sallallahu alaihi So he alluded to something very interesting that we may be crying about it now. You know, you know what? It's already passed and it's already destroyed and there's already another structure built onto it, even though the court ruling doesn't say. How will the court ruling know that this was the birthplace of Ram 5,800 years ago? They haven't got his birth certificate. They haven't got any witnesses. All are dead 5,700 years ago. And anyway, how can a God and a deity be born anyway? Lam yalid wa lam yulad, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says. All they say that it seems that this particular mosque was built on an indigenous structure. What? An indigenous structure. Indigenous means that somebody existed before, whether they were Hindu, whether they were Buddhist, whether they were Jain, whatever, they, it was another structure. And as a result, it seems that this is the case that the Muslims came later on. Upon that one singular point, it gives enough impetus to kufr and disbelief that we will take away a structure that stands for 700 years. But you know what? This is not unique and new amongst the Ummah. The Ummah keeps on learning this lesson. And the last time the Ummah actively learned this lesson was in the 15th century of Spain. With Spain, upon its record in the early 1400s, had no less than 8,000 masajid. And those masajid are recorded as having imported marble from all parts of the world, hot water from all parts of the world. But in 1492, when Abdullah XIII, the last emperor of the the last emperor of the Sultanate of Granada in the south of Spain, when he left, when he left, he was forced to leave. He was forced to abdicate by the arriving forces. They gave him a choice. Here's your choice. We will make you a petty chief amongst us until you die. The chiefdom is not transferable to your children. So you will live as a chief. You'll get a pension because after all, you were a sultan or something of that sort. You'll eat, you'll get nice and fat. And as a result, you'll die. And that will be the end of your lineage. That's choice number one. Choice number two, you can take whatever you want from this palace, put it in the satchels of your bag, and you can leave. And you can leave and go in the world wherever you want to. Nobody's going to harm you. He goes to a point outside the city of Granada. And this is a lookout point these days. And this point is called Murihul Mujir, the side of the of the Moor. The Christians used to call them Moors. The Christians used to call them the Muslims Moors. It's called the Sai, you know, Sai out of grief, out of worry, out of concern. The Sai of the Moor. So he comes to this point, looking at his lovely Granada that he's now leaving, and he starts to cry. His mother, Maryam II, and she was considered to be a Sayyid from the family of Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. She tells him, why are you crying like a woman, what you couldn't defend like a man? Why are you crying like a woman, what you could not defend like a man? So whenever any, and she, that's a counsel to him, that now you are sitting here crying, you took the offer of, uh, of putting money inside your bags and moving on, and leaving what was 800 years within Muslim dominion, and you are now crossing the sea. You'll be a rich man wherever you go. 
you may land up in Mor- present-day Morocco or Tunisia, or some country will take you in in exile, but you will no longer exist as an individual. And Islam in this place will no longer exist because of the concession that you made. And it is for this very reason the Ummah always has to be very circumspect whenever any concession is made in regarding those things which are the salient features of this Ummah, whatever it may be, whether it be an outer or inner thing, but any particular concession should not and should never be made and quite often it is better for a person to die upon it as opposed to accept it that's not always there's different cases of course for different things but where it entails those things that are beloved and dear for the ummah that concession is never ever made lightly hence this is the system of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so grants martyrdom for any mu'min, for any believer, it is but honor for that believer. The ummah continues to learn that lesson. You know, we speak of Palestine, Palestine, for as long as the last few months have gone by and for the last few decades. How did, how did we get here? How did we get here to this particular point? It didn't start when the Yahud arrived in the 1930s and 40s. Already in World War One. When the Ummah was a divided Ummah, when the Uthmaniyin, when the Ottoman Khilafah was a divided one amongst themselves, and very few people stood by them or even knew of them at that point in time, when Al-Quds was lost at that time to the Ummah, all occupation or whatever the case may be started from that time. Already over a hundred years, if not even beyond that. And this is the nature of this belief, to take a little bit, a little bit, but at a time. But at the same time, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, there is always concession for a believer. If one has to look at a historical timeline, if a Muslim community was expelled in the 13-1400s from Spain, when did Islam arrive in India at the same time? When did Islam arrive in the islands of Malaysia and Indonesia round about a century thereafter from as way as the sultanates of Aceh and all these places over here? A lesson unto the ummah that your deen will always spread because I'm independent of you. I'm independent of you as an individual Muslim for the protection and the preservation of my deen. But you will consistently be tested depending upon your amal and your actions. If the observation of the last few months did not as yet turn a person unto the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, did not as yet make a person believe that there is only one creator, destroyer, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala unto the entire world, then that person has got a heart of stone. Because if a believer sees 16 to 20 tons of bombs being dropped upon a small area, but people still saying, Hasbunallah wa ni'mal wakil, people still coming out of the underground and shooting back, what could that be? No other nation in the world will do it. There's never ever been another nation. As resolute as the Japanese may have been in 1945, it took a couple of bombs to break that resolution. But 10 times, 50 times more dropped upon a small part of the world. What is this? This is a lesson unto the mu'min and even the ghair mu'min as well. That this is the power of Imam that even if there was a wrong a centuries before, 
the resolve of the mu'min of the believer can rectify that wrong with the permission of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it may not be them, it may be their children, it may be their grandchildren who will now defeat an enemy. But the ummah lies in awe of any community that puts their trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That an and ibrah, a lesson, is sought from every one of us. My respected friends, before we conclude, alhamdulillah, we end the ayyam and the days preleading or precluding and extending to the month of Ramadan. It is at this time we make the dua that Allahumma barik lana, that Allah grant us barakah in Rajab wa Shaban in the month of Rajab and Shaban wa balighna Ramadan. But as this month of Ramadan comes on or gets closer, it's not just the month of fasting, it's the month of Quran. It's a month of also striving in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is the month of personal tawbah. It's the month of personal reflection. And already at this point, a mu'min makes a niyat and an intention that, oh Allah, that should you allow me to reach that month of Ramadan, I don't know, you know. But you know, and if I do reach the month of Ramadan, my niyat will be that it will be the best possible Ramadan by way of my iman, by way of my amal, by way of my attachment to the Quran and whatever discrepancies there were in the previous Ramadan, that I will not display it in this Ramadan with your permission. الحمد لله قائل هذا اعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم وادعو الى سبيل ربك بالحكمه والموعظه الحسنه فنحمده حمدا كثيرا كلما يحمد الحامدون ونشكر جميلا كلما يكرم صلى الله على النبي وصلى الله عليه وعلى اله وسلم دائمتين متلازمتين الى يوم يجمع الاولون والاخرون اما بعد فيا ايها الناس امسكوا ونفسي بتقوى الله فقد فاز المتقون ويقول الله عز وجل كنتم خير أمة أخرجت للناس تأمرون بالمعروف وتنهون المنكر وقال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم من رأى منكم منكرا فليغير بيده فإن لم يستجب بلساني وإن لم يستجب بقلبي وذلك أضعف الإيمان أو كما قال عليه الصلاة والسلام هذا وحثكم على طاعة الله وطاعة رسوله ومن يطع الله ورسوله فقد ركن واحتدا ومن يعص الله ورسوله فقد خسر وغوى واستغفر الله لي ولكم ورسائر المسلمين فاستغفروه فيا فوز المستغفرين ويا نجاة التائب الحمد لله الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤذي وتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومات عمالنا من يهدي الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له ونشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن سيدنا ونبينا ومولانا محمد عبده ورسوله أرسله بالحق بشيرا ونذيرا بين يدي الساعة من يفع الله ورسوله فقد رشد ومن يعصيهما فإنه لا يضر إلا نفسه ولا يضر الله شيئا أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد عبدك ورسولك وصل على المؤمنين والمؤمنات والمسلمين والمسلمات 
وبارك على محمد وأزواجه وذريته قال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم رحم أمتي بأمتي أبو بكر رضي الله تعالى وأشهد في أمر الله عمر رضي الله تعالى وأصدق محيا عن عثمان رضي الله تعالى وأقضاهم علي رضي الله تعالى وفاتمة سيد نسائي أهل الجنة والحسن والحسين سيدا شباب أهل الجنة وحمزة أسد الله وأسد رسوله اللهم اغفر العباس وولده مغفرة ظاهرة وباطنة لا تغادر دما وعن كل السحابة أجمعين الله الله في أصحابي لا تتخذهم غرضا من بعدي فمن أحبهم فبحبي أحبهم ومن أبغضهم فببغضي أبغضهم وخير أمتي قرني ثم الذين يلونهم ثم الذين يلونهم ربنا أتنا في الدنيا حسنة وفي الآخرة حسنة وقنا ذاب النار اللهم وفقنا لما تحب وترضى من الفعل والقول والعمل والنية والهدى إنك على كل شيء قدير اللهم عز الإسلام والمسلمين اللهم انصر من نصر دين سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وجعلنا منهم عباد الله رحمكم الله إن الله يأمر بالأدل وإحسان وإيتاء ذي القربى وينهان الفحشاء والمنكر والبغي يعيدكم لعلكم تذكرون أذكر الله يذكركم وادعوه يستجب لكم ولذكر الله تعالى أعلى وأولى وعز وجل وتم وأكبر والله يعلم ما تصنعون الله أكبر الحمد لله رب العالمين الرحمن الرحيم مالك يوم الدين إياك نعبد وإياك نستعين اهدنا الصراط المستقيم صراط الذين أنعمت عليهم غير المغضوب عليهم ولا الضالين إن بطش ربك لشديد إنه هو يبذئ ويعيد وهو الغفور الودود ذو العرش المجيد فعال لما يريد هل أتاك حديث الجنود فرعون وثمود بل الذين كفروا في تكذيب والله من ورائهم محيط بل هو قرآن مجيد في لوح محفوظ الله أكبر الله لمن حمده الله أكبر الله أكبر الله أكبر الله أكبر الحمد لله رب العالمين الرحمن الرحيم مالك يوم الدين إياك نعبد وإياك نستعين اهدنا الصراط المستقيم صراط الذين أنعمت عليهم غير المغضوب عليهم ولا الضالين إذا جاء نصر الله والفتح ورأيت الناس يدخلون في دين الله أفواجا فسبح بحمد ربك واستغفر إنه كان توابا الله من حمد الله أكبر الله أكبر الله أكبر السلام عليكم ورحمة الله
السلام عليكم ورحمة الله بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم رب الخير الحمد لله رب العالمين ولا عقبة للمتقين والسلاة والسلام على ربنا كرسة وكلاة وكلاة بالنار اللهم بارك بالشعبان وبلغ لنا اللهم استحل علينا أمورنا اللهم استحل على إخواننا المكان يا رحم الراحمين اللهم ارحم على اللهم ارحم على موتاهم ولا جراحهم يا رب العالمين اللهم ارزقهم فتحا قريبا ونصرا عظيما يا رحمن ربك رب العالمين وسلام على المرسلين والحمد لله